You got your Bibles with you? Analog, digital, memory will be in Philippians. And my big task is to do Philippians in six weeks. Um, there's so much there. We're going we're gonna to have a great time. Now, how many of you were, were here last time? I was here in June. A few of you. Um, just a little bit about me. Um, I pastored Calvary Chapel Portland for 23 years and uh, only just resigned four years ago and it was to be part of a ministry called Poyman Ministries. Now Poyman is just an odd word but it means shepherd and we're a group of retired pastors although we're not really retired uh, just tired um, and it's our whole ministry now to minister to pastors and to churches in all kinds of needs, whether it's sometimes just filling in so a church, a pastor can have a vacation, uh, or maybe like in your case where you're between pastors and to assist even in searching for a pastor. Now the pastor that, that you have reached out to would consider coming here used to attend my church probably over 15 years ago. So I know him and his family and have talked to him and we'll see if that's where the Lord is going or if the Lord has somebody else in mind. Um, now I talk to about maybe 10 pastors a week in what I do. Uh, it's either emails, phone calls, by video. I do regular pastoral coaching with pastors around the country that just need to grow in their leadership or they're struggling with something, they're really discouraged. Um, and, you know, that's really a normal course of ministry. Pastors suddenly get surprised by how fatigued they are in the ministry. There is this idea, they, they tend to think that, wow, if I'm really just trusting the Lord all the time, then I am always going to be excited about ministry. I'm never going to be discouraged. I'm not going to get fatigued. And I say, look, if you're running a race, you're going to get tired. So stop thinking that something's wrong with you just because you got tired or even discouraged. Every church, and I, I, I pray that you hear me, every church goes through its seasons of hardship. I remember thinking when I became a pastor at 35 at Calvary Chapel, Portland, they had just lost their pastor. And I had a small group of about 20 people. I, I sincerely thought if, if I just love the Lord and just, just trust the Lord and love these people we are never going to experience the challenges that other churches have. That was so ignorant. <laughs> it, it was just naive. And when the challenges did come, I was so discouraged. And now over the years, that was in 1993 when I came to Portland. And now 28 years later, uh, I've been through many seasons of ups and downs. Their church grows, their church shrinks, people love you, they leave. It's just really 
how ministry goes. And of course, our job as pastors is to be faithful, to trust the Lord, to do the work of ministry, to teach the word, to love people and to minister to them. But in spite of that, there are those seasons of hardship and discouragement. Now, as I'm talking to pastors, because of the kind of either the fatigue and discouragement or just the routine of ministry, I often have to remind pastors the purpose of ministry. Because you see, often we're so, we're so focused on planning the next event, planning the next service, preparing the next sermon, that running the church often becomes the primary focus. They don't mean for that to happen. It just takes on the full attention. And so here at the beginning of six weeks with you, I might ask you, why does verbatim church exist? Why are you here? I believe, as Pastor Chuck would teach us, I was there in the Jesus movement as, a, as an 18-year-old in the mid-70s in Orange County. I attended Costa Mesa through the 80s and then started pastoring in the 90s forward. Pastor Chuck would always say to us, why does your church exist in your city? Just as there's variety among us of strengths and personalities and gifts... There is a variety of churches in Albany. Amen? Yeah. Okay, you can answer back. We'll set some ground rules. There is a variety of churches. Whether they are healthy or not, or doctrinally correct or not, that's another issue. But even within, you know, healthy biblical churches... There's room for a variety of styles and even focuses of their ministries. Amen? Okay. So the question is, why does verbatim church exist? Why are you here? You do not exist to just build a bigger church. Big shock. The purpose of the church is not to grow a bigger church. And do you know many pastor thinks, pastors think that is the focus of their ministry? They, don't, they wouldn't say it, and they probably don't outright mean it. But really, if you look at everything they say and do, it's about growing. Now, of course, we want to grow to reach more people so that we can do the primary work of the church which is to bring people into a personal, loving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. That's why any church exists. But within that great overall focus of the Great Commission of Matthew 28, you might have a unique focus within that Great Commission. What is it? It will come with your pastor 
but it was also here over the years. And if I were to talk to your elders or many of you, I would want to know what is the main work that God has done in this church over the years. I could tell you in the 23 years that I was at Calvary Chapel, Portland, who was it that tended to gravitate to my church and to my style of ministry? For me, it was people who used to go to church but hadn't been in church for a long time, and people over and over would show up, new people, and they'd say, wow, I really like this. You know, I haven't been in church in years, but I really like this. And it felt like that was what the Lord had given me for my focus of ministry. And then to train people for ministry, to send out young men and women to do more ministry. Why does this church exist? And let me tell you, Albany needs to know why you're here. It's not just that church or that church or that church. It is verbatim church. This is what's going on at that church. I'm coaching you right now. We're not here just to run a church service or have another Bible study. I can remember the look on the face of a pastor I was talking to named Terry. And I said, you know, um, we don't study the Bible to know more Bible. He looked at me like I just said some, something heretical. We do not study the Bible to know the Bible. We study the Bible to know Jesus. Lots of religions know the Bible. The Pharisees knew the scriptures. Better touch my screen before it blacks out, goes to sleep. You're not going to sleep, are you? Jesus said in John 5, 39 and 40 to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it's these that testify of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. And so I pray this morning, Lord, what is it that verbatim needs? Specifically today, not just in general. I know you need to be refocused on the Lord. I don't know how discouraged you are. This interim time is hard to get through. It would be normal for you to lose focus and excitement for what you're doing. I know there's people who aren't here that maybe are waiting for a pastor to, to be here. And I, I feel like I'm, like, you know, you watch YouTube videos and they say, if you like what you see, make sure you subscribe and like, because then it'll share it. So you could do that right now. If you like, how awesome am I being super awesome? You want to share what's going on this morning with your friends who would normally be here. And my job in these six weeks is just to build you up, remind you of why you're here, and prepare you for what's next. That's my job. I'm the interim babysitter. You're welcome. 
Philippians is a great place, a letter for where you are. And every one of the 66 books in the Bible was written with a specific purpose. Did you know that? In fact, the whole Bible, 66 books, are all about Jesus, to make this very simple. Jesus said that. He just said that in John 5, 39, 40. It's these which testify of me. It doesn't matter what Old Testament book you go to. It is something about the coming ministry, person, power of Jesus Christ. It's not just history for history's sake. Philippians is specifically written to a church that is suffering that needs to be reminded of the joy of God. It's that letter of joy. So we're going to see verses 1 through 11 today. Are you people who take notes in your phone? I'll give you maybe just be ready for the awesome things I'm about to say. (laughs) But really, be ready for the Lord to speak to you and say, man, that was for me. And just just take a note of that. Because I'm not just here to teach you a Bible study. I'm here to speak to you about your relationship with the Lord. So if the Lord speaks to you, it shouldn't be any surprise. Please do not be surprised if the Lord says something to you today. Philippians is a letter of thanks. You want to know how to write a thank you note? Read Philippians. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, for the financial support that they have sent to him while he is in a Roman prison. It is a letter filled with joy and rejoicing. It is full of verses that you know, famous one-liners in the Bible. There are several of them in Philippians. Philippians 1.6 He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you have heard that? Yes. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, you've seen this YouTube video. 4.19. Philippians 4.19. My God, say it with me, my God shall supply all your needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. I think I paraphrased that a little differently. The power of the word restores joy where there is discouragement. I can still remember to this day, it was a, a Friday evening in June or July in 2020. A woman called me a Friday evening Someone in my church had given her my phone number, and she said that she was on the brink of committing suicide. I didn't know her, and I'm thinking, what am I supposed to say? I remember that evening, I had the whole youth group from the church at my house. It's also game seven of the NBA playoffs between the Blazers and the Lakers. I remember it because not only from that call, it is in NBA history, the, the largest comeback in an NBA playoff game in NBA history. Thanks, Blazers. 
As I shared with her, she felt no value to her life, no purpose. And I just shared with her the basic truths that the Lord loves her. She has value. And people cared for her. And you know, I've shared that with many people over the years that I've been a pastor, and not everyone hears me. For some reason, because of the Lord, she heard me. Her life was restored, and she has pretty consistently had a steady walk with the Lord all these years, and I still talk with her. And she still tells me that conversation is what the Lord used to restore her life. It's a basic truth that when we have tried everything else, the only hope of purpose in life is the Lord. It is the Lord. The Philippians need to hear that the Lord loves them. You see, Philippi is in Macedonia, part of Greece. In 42 AD, it had become a Roman colony. Octavian moved Italian citizens there with full rights and even extra special privileges as Roman citizens in this Roman colony. And so the Philippians, though they are not Romans are being treated as foreigners and oppressed in their own land. The church at Philippi was the first Christian church in Europe. And so you can see the importance of their model, their, their role model to the whole region for how God had worked in their city. The birth of the church of Philippi was when Paul and Silas came. If you read Acts 16, you know that Paul and Silas were in a vision called to come to Philippi. They went there. They ministered to a group of women meeting by a riverside on the Sabbath day. They were Jewish women. They, they weren't, didn't have enough male population in the city to have their own um, um, what do you call it? What? What? Synagogue. Sorry, I just lost, lost the word right there. I kept wanting to say temple. It's not a temple. And so that is where Paul met a woman you know named Lydia. A seller of purple. She believed in the Lord. She invited Paul and Silas to stay at her house. Um, and her whole house believed in the Lord. And as Paul and Silas continued to minister in Philippi, this is where there was a demon-possessed girl that shouted out while they were preaching. Paul eventually got so irritated with her, her, her shouting that he cast the demon out. And her masters, who were making money, profit, off of her fortune-telling or whatever she did... They complained, got Paul and Silas to get thrown into prison. There in the night, Paul and Silas are praising the Lord. And that's when there was an earthquake. The chains fell off the prisoners in the prison. The doors were opened. You remember this story? 
And the, the guard woke up, saw the prison doors open, and assumed that all the prisoners had gone free. And he was about to take his own life because that would be the punishment for losing your prisoners. If someone is broken in under your watch, it would be his execution. But Paul stopped him and said, hold on, we're all here. Paul shared the Lord with that, that prison guard and even went to his house and his family believed. All of this miraculous story is the beginnings of the church at Philippi. The next morning, the officials of the city just wanted Paul and Silas to leave secretly without any, any big you know, to do and any big upset. And Paul said, look, we are Roman citizens. And it was against the law for Roman officials to punish Roman citizens in the way that they had treated Paul and Silas. And so they, Paul says, look, you've treated us wrongly. If they want us to go, tell the city officials they must come here personally and tell us. And so Paul used his Roman citizenship as a leverage to gain inroads into the city of Philippi. And they came and let them go. So all of this is the amazing beginnings of the church at Philippi. The people know this, and probably if I were to talk to you, you would some of you would tell me some miraculous stories of the beginnings of this church. Things that God has done over the years. You know, it's important for you to remember how God has worked in this city, in this community. And not just focus on, well, I hope we get through this time. Isn't this so lame, what we're going through now? Well, of course it is. But the Lord is not hindered by this. He's still working. He's with you. And so we need to be reminded of that. And that's what this letter is for the church at Philippi. Let's start at verse 1. The greeting is verses 1 and 2. It's a greeting of grace and peace. It says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like a typical opening greeting to Paul, one of Paul's letters. Paul and Timothy. So Paul probably likely dictated this letter to Timothy. And then it was delivered back to the church at Ephesus by one of the elders named Epaphroditus. You'll see later in the letter. And he was the one who brought the financial gift to Paul and Timothy for their support. All these words mean things. It's interesting that Paul doesn't begin this by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, like he does in some of his other letters, kind of reasserting his place as, as an apostle. But here, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a bond slave. Now, Paul is in prison 
and yet he introduces or signs his, this letter to them, not Paul, a prisoner of Nero, not Paul, a prisoner of Rome, but he says, my identity is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know, we get so caught up in our circumstances that we make that our identity. Our identity is completely in the Lord. Regardless of what you're going through, your identity is in the Lord. He writes this to the saints. Who is a saint? A saint is not those that we pray to that did miracles that get special status. A saint are merely those who are holy. That is, anybody who has believed on the Lord, it means that your life has been sanctified or set apart from the world for a special relationship with Jesus Christ. And so all these Philippians, he reminds them their unique, special relationship with the Lord. You are people who are special in the Lord. To the bishops or the elders, the deacons, the servants, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago, I would talk to the cults and learn how to talk to the cults, and I learned how important these little words are. When Paul says grace and peace from God the Father and the, and the is giving Jesus equal status to the Father. Equal status. Verses 3 through 11 is the prayer. We call it really a prayer of thanks in this letter of thanks. Paul prays, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of, of mine, making request for you. Excuse me, my iPad's acting up. Making request for you all with joy. Mark that. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my, in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, you think he was Southern, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Isn't that amazing? You might read that in your morning devotions uh, this week a few times. If you're taking notes, verses 3 through 8 would be the attitude of Paul's prayer. The attitude of Paul's prayer. And there's three things I just want to mention. In his attitude, remember, his attitude of prayer while he's in prison, while he's praying for a suffering church. 
His attitude is three things. Verses three, verse three, he's thankful. I am thankful for you. Now, when you're suffering and somebody sends you a note or calls you or texts you or sends you a check in the mail, aren't you thankful not only for the support or the thought, for just the fact to know that somebody is with you? They're thinking of you. Even as I was just, uh, just here this morning and getting ready, I got a note from another Oregon Calvary pastor who just said he was praying for me as I was speaking for you this, uh, with you this morning. So he's thankful. Second, in verses 4 and 5, he's joyful. Joyful. He's joyful for their fellowship. And third, in verse 6, he's confident. Confident in what? You know, I don't know about you, but I lose my confidence pretty easily. It's easy for me to say, hey, just trust the Lord. And in fact, when I was a young pastor and struggling and discouraged, and I would go to older pastors and say, man, I, can you help me? I'm struggling. What do I do? And you know, way too many times one of them would say sincerely hey just trust the lord and you'll be okay that it, it wasn't always encouraging it wasn't even though it was true i don't know that i really believed them cuz i thought i am trusting the lord don't tell me just trust the Lord and I'll be okay. I am trusting the Lord. What do I do in this situation? Paul is thankful, he's joyful, and he's confident. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 10, 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How many of you know that verse? Now, if you just read that verse, what it sounds like is when you're struggling, you must press on and never, ever, ever lose hope. The fact is, if I... If I always was hopeful I wouldn't need to be reminded to trust the Lord trials are so big and sometimes they last so long that we genuinely just feel hopeless and so the ability to press through the trials is not based on your ability to hold on and persevere that's what that verse sounds like but it's not and in fact, that hold fast, it means merely that you have a confession. He says, hold fast to your confession of hope in the Lord. The word confess means to say the same thing. I learned that from J. Vernon McGee many years ago. To say the same thing. And what that means is when the Bible says that Jesus is faithful to give you a future and a hope, Jeremiah 29, 11. I either agree with that or I don't. 
Your hope is in the Lord. Do you agree with me? What about in days when you feel hopeless? Is that still true? Your hope is in the Lord. That's not a trick question. Yes, you may feel hopeless, but did that change the fact that your hope is in the Lord? No. So even on a day when I am completely discouraged, depressed, I feel hopeless, I can still have a confession, an agreement that Jesus is my future. That's what that means. And so I can calm the heck down when I feel crazy inside. And the fact is, despair makes you think crazy thoughts. It's not unspiritual for you to say, weird things are going through my head. I feel like doing this. I feel like doing this. I know I shouldn't, but I don't know where these thoughts come from. Did you know David said, Lord, you know my thoughts from afar off? What he was saying is, God, I don't even know my own heart, but you know literally the origin of my thoughts. You know my, thought, my thoughts from afar off. You know the origin. I don't even know the origin of my thoughts. The psychologist can't tell me the origin of my thoughts. My wife wants to tell me the origin of my thoughts. But I'm pretty sure she's wrong every time. I hope she's not watching the live stream. Oh, I know what you were really thinking. Really? And here's what I've learned. On my worst day, I still have hope in the Lord. Because that verse again says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The last line... For he who promised is faithful. It's not because you need to prove that you're faithful. The truth is, I want to be faithful every day, every minute of the day. But the truth is, I'm not. I hope that doesn't shock you. You are not faithful every day, every minute of the day. So if my future was based on my faithfulness... I would be lost. And that scares me. It scares you to think I'm losing my grip. And then there's those really bad days when you do lose your grip. And you discover the greatest thing you will ever learn. Is that when you lose hold, the Lord is still holding on to you. You didn't crash and burn. You feel like you're going to crash and burn. So he who promised is faithful. He's the one who's faithful. So I can just close my door, lock myself in, remove all the knives, <laughs> any dangerous sharp objects away from me and say, I still have a future and a hope. My confession, I agree with the fact that Jesus is my only hope. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, 
says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you what? A future and a hope. And that was in one of the worst times in Israel's history when they were rebelling against God and God was, they were accusing God of being against them. And he was essentially saying, stop telling me what I think. I know my thoughts. And I'm going to give you a future and a hope, even if I have to discipline you, which he did do. He led them into the Babylonian captivity. Let's see. What time does this service end? Did you say 1 o'clock? No, we'll wrap it up here. Here's what's important. Verses 9 through 11 is the content of Paul's prayer. What does he actually pray for them? This is so important, and I would say really important for you. First of all, it's in verse 9. Notice the word that. That your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So we all want to abound in the love of God. And if there's anything that is attractive to your community, to a church, it is a church that is abounding in the love of God. It's not a church. A church is you. You're going to go out there and be people who are abounding in the love of God. But sometimes the fact is our abounding zeal for the love of God can be a bit abrasive, can't it? Especially in the time that we're in right now where churches are working out all these issues, these political issues, masks, vaccines, people. Did you know churches are dividing over these issues right now? I know these are urgent things and people are spiritualizing political decisions. Here, let me say something profound. We're allowed to have different opinions within the body of Christ, aren't we? And so if you have a strong opinion about whatever, I won't even say the word vaccine. <laughs> allow for other people to have other opinions. Even though you've become the authority. But here's the kind of love Paul prays that the church would have. It is abounding more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Those two words, knowledge and discernment, describe the kind of love we are to have for people. It is love that is not abrasive. It is abounding. But this word for knowledge is not just how much you know. It is knowledge that has come through a life of obedience. The lessons you've learned by experience. We all know that teenagers are the authorities on everything. And suddenly we get into our 20s, 30s, 40s, and we realize we didn't know everything. Well, maybe that applies to young Christians too. So don't mistake your youthful doctrinal zeal for real knowledge. You, you are learning things, but as you are obeying and applying 
your brilliant knowledge, you're going to get a more accurate and balanced understanding of spiritual things. Discernment is not just your, your eagle eye to make judgments. Aha, I see what you're doing. This word for discernment means your ability to speak the truth in gentleness. I can see what's going on in a conversation, and I can share a word that is not doing injury or dividing the church, but it's gentle. And everything we say needs to be to build up the church, not harm others and be right. The reward of living in obedience to the Lord is maturity and spirit, true spiritual understanding. The second thing Paul prays for, verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. Approve means the ability to test and confirm what is good. Not all of us are able to discern and see through the mess of conversation and opinions and emotions and get to the point of it and to see what's really important here. But Paul prays that they would be able to approve the things that are excellent. And again... Maybe you have an opinion about something, but rather than just say it, just say, you know, I think this, what do you think? And allow for others to maybe challenge you or question you. Maybe you are right. Maybe you're not right. But remember, our highest priority is not to be right, but to be right with the Lord. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, or it's that same word, approve what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We all want to know the will of God, don't we? Have you ever prayed that? The big question that pastors get answered, what is God's will for my life? I don't think I shared this last time. I, you know, 30 years of ministry, I have done this field research. There are two prayers, great prayers that people have. Do you want to know what they are? Say yes. Okay. The great prayer, God, what is your will for my life? Okay. Now, you know that one. You may not know the follow-up prayer. If the first one gets answered, there is a second great common prayer and that is God do I have to do that <laughs> you know that's true if you've lived long enough you know that's true why is that the case it's because really the very thing you've been praying for which is Lord tell me why I'm here what is your purpose for my life that thing will cost you something. That thing will be the cross that you are commanded to take up and carry. It will require, it will be purpose, 
but it will be something of suffering at the same time. Just as Jesus came into this world to provide salvation for us through the cross, your calling is your cross. When people say, oh, this is my cross to bear, I whatever, it's usually not their cross to bear. Your calling is your cross. And it will be so important that there will be sacrifice related to it. The third thing that Paul prays for in verse 10, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Sincere and without offense. I'm trying not to be offensive. Have I offended any of you? Convicting. I love this word sincere. How many of you, I don't want to tell you things. Uh, I'm just going to pretend like you don't know this. The word sincere is amazing. Do you know what the, what, where this comes from? It's two, two original words, sine sire, which literally means without wax. Now, aren't you impressed at how spiritually profound that is? Any of you ever heard that before? The sculptors would work with marble. And if they're chiseling and working on a statue for months and months and months and finally getting to a, a near finished product, they might actually accidentally, the chisel would slip and they'd knock the nose off the, the statue or something. They're not going to throw that whole thing away. They're going to take some marble, marble shavings, mix it with wax, fashion a fake nose, and put it on that statue. And so sincere without wax is what we would say, let the buyer beware. If you're going to go buy a marble statue from a sculptor, make sure it is what? Sincere. There are no fake parts on it. Because you buy that statue, get it home, and in a hot day, what's going to happen in the front yard? It's going to have a runny nose. That's right. And so our lives need to be without fake parts. It's, let me just say it's assumed that we have flaws. So let's not act like we're the one who got it all together. We all have flaws. But my confidence in this world was never about my ability to hold it together. It is about the fact that my life has been set apart for the Lord. And that gives me the confidence that I want. Verse 11, the last line of the of the. The prayer being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are, note, by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. That last line, worship team, why don't you go ahead and come up? That last line takes the pressure off of you. Because all these things that we, we want the Lord to do in our life... They are entirely by Jesus Christ. You are not producing these fruits of righteousness. 
fruits of faithfulness, fruit, the fruit of love, which is the primary fruit of the Spirit we're looking for. And, you know, quite often we preachers preach these big, passionate messages and say, now come on, let's go be loving. Let's go witness to our community and bring people to the Lord. And the fact is, you don't have the ability to do the things that the Bible asks us to do. And so you get all whipped up and you go try for a short time and then pretty soon you quit because it's not working. How many times I've heard people say, oh, I tried church. I used to go to church. I, I did this. There is no peace in trying to be something you're not. You can just relax and say, Lord, would you produce the fruit in me? Give me the love for people. Give me the discernment to see what's going on. Give me the words to be edifying instead of abrasive. That gives you the peace that you are looking for. Amen? My prayer for verbatim church is that you just reset, restart on the very basics that you are set apart in the Lord. That this community, the city of Albany, needs you to be the church that God established here. Not like another church, not like whoever, wherever your friends go. What is the work God wants to do in this church? And that the community needs you to be sincere, genuine people of God. Flawed in everything, but abounding in the love of God. Would you stand with me? I just want to pray for you, and we'll close in a song.